Amen. Thank you. Thank you, worship team. That was great. That, <clears throat> that does come from the Apostles' Creed, which is a, a thousands-of-year-old creed that the early church believed, and now we still believe that. Uh, and speaking of the earliest church and the apostles, we last week saw from Pastor Al, Acts chapter 1, we'd been in a series uh, in 2021 leading up to Easter called Encountering Jesus. We were looking at the different ways Jesus encountered different kinds of people throughout his time on earth. We were looking at what can we learn from these encounters with Jesus? What do we learn about who Jesus is and who he claimed to be and what he came to do? And it was an incredible series. And then we got to Easter. And then after Easter was last week when we looked at what, what does the encounter look like in Acts chapter 1. And we saw Jesus make a promise that you're going to be filled with the Spirit. We saw this commission be given that you're going to be witnesses. And in Acts 2, which is where we're going to be today, we kind of see the first step. We see what happens after Jesus is ascended to heaven and the apostles are left. And then what happens? And so if you have a copy of God's word, I'd invite you to join me in Acts chapter 2. And we're going to be in the whole chapter. We're not going to read it all at once, but we're going to read a little bit and talk about a little bit. But this is Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and the residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said they're filled with new wine. So let's pray together, and then we're going to dive into this text and then see how Peter explains what's happening here in Acts 2. Father, as we open your word, would you speak to our hearts? And as you speak, I pray we'd know that it's you. In Jesus' name, amen. In Acts chapter 2, something amazing happens. You have a group of what we learn in Acts 1 is about 120 people, and we have apostles, 12 apostles now. They've replaced Judas, who betrayed Jesus. They've replaced him. And now you have them waiting because Jesus said, wait, don't do anything until you receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit's going to give you power for this mission I'm giving you. So wait. So they're waiting. They're sitting. It says they're in a house or in a room. And all of a sudden there's this sound like a mighty rushing wind. They're filled with the Spirit in such a way that they begin to share the good news. It says the mighty works of God. But they're not just talking about the good news like the way that they learned to speak growing up, the way our kids are learning in our house, that they speak English, but they don't fully understand. They're like, I want to learn to speak English. We're like, well, you do speak English. We're like, well, I want to learn to speak 
but like real English. And they, so they're starting to understand language and people speak different languages. And in this time in Acts 2, the apostles begin to speak languages they had never learned. The Holy Spirit came in and gave them an utterance to be able to speak to people that spoke a different language so they could share the gospel with them and tell them about the mighty works of God that's happened in Jesus. And the natural explanation for some of the people who were there that day says they must be drunk. That, that's really all we could point to, right? I mean, surely, I, how, how else do you explain this? It's miraculous and supernatural and divine or they had too much wine and it's not even lunchtime yet. And so there's this kind of thing happening where, where it's clear that there's something. I mean, there's got to be some explanation for the tongues that are being spoken. What is it? And it says that Peter, this is in verse 14, Peter with the 11, he stands up and he lifted his voice and addressed them. Here's what Peter said. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. Let this be known to you and give ear to my words for these people are not drunk as you suppose since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And he quotes Joel from the Old Testament. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Peter continues, men of Israel, Hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, concerning Jesus, then Peter quotes Psalm 16. I saw the Lord always before me, for he's at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You've made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I... I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke, David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up. And of that, we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter stands up, and this is Peter's sermon at Pentecost, at this feast that happened 
about 50 days after Passover. And he stands up and he preaches. The, the Spirit shows up, fills the apostles so that they're speaking in other languages and people are saying, what is happening? This must be uh, like wine is that the reason you guys are able to talk like that what is leading you to be able to speak these different languages and peter says no it's not wine it's actually what was prophesied in the prophet joel and that's where he quotes in verses 17 through 21 he quotes the prophet joel and joel is saying in the last days which was old testament code for like near the end near that great day of the lord when God would come and bring judgment on all sin and evil and wickedness and he would make everything right once and for all, when we get close to that day, the Holy Spirit is gonna come and God says, I'm gonna pour out my spirit on all flesh. And he says, look, I'm not gonna discriminate. It's not just gonna be for the rich. It's not just gonna be for men. It's gonna be for women. It's not just gonna be for the rich. It's gonna be for the servants. It's not just gonna be for the old. It's gonna be for the young. I'm gonna pour out my spirit. And he says at the end a very important verse, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Peter's saying what you're experiencing right now is what Joel talked about. He's, he's basically saying we're now living in the last days. So 2,000 years ago, they thought it was close to the end of the world. Okay? So be comforted. This is something we've always thought. <laughs> But Peter says we're close to the end because the Spirit's been poured out. And when the Spirit comes, we know the only way to be saved in the last days is if you call on the name of the Lord. The only way to be saved is if you call on the name of the Lord. And then he dives in to look at the person and the work of Jesus. And here's what I want us to look at this morning. We're going to look at the life, the death, the resurrection, and the exaltation of Jesus. Because that's exactly what Peter does in this sermon. He starts off by looking at the life of Jesus. Look at verse 22 with me. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. He's appealing to the life of Jesus, to these Jews who were gathered in the holy city for a feast. He's appealing to the life of Jesus. And notice what he says. Jesus was attested by God. God is proving, demonstrating in Jesus who he is through signs and through works and through wonders. And see, here, here's the amazing part. We can argue about who Jesus was and who he wasn't. We can argue about the things that really didn't happen and the things that really did happen. But here's what Peter seems to believe. Among the thousands that were at Pentecost... There was no argument that Jesus was miraculous. Like, Peter didn't have to go and belabor that point to the Jews who were there that day. He says, as you yourselves know. See, it wasn't doubted that Jesus was miraculous. They had all seen his signs and wonders. Many of them had probably experienced it. There were probably people there that ate his multiplying meals that he did on different occasions. There were people there that knew of families that had been raised to life. Was there anyone there who knew Lazarus? Was there anyone there who knew Jairus' daughter? Was there anyone there who knew someone that Jesus had performed a miracle on? Probably so because it was so prominent. Peter says, look, you yourselves know the miraculous life of Jesus. And I'm here to tell you today, says Peter, that all the miracles, all the signs, all the wonders were God attesting to who Jesus was. See, these Jews in the first century, 
had seen the miracles of Jesus, but they missed who he really was. They missed who Jesus really was. And just like these early Jews, we can see things of Jesus and miss who he is. That's probably the most popular thing to do with Jesus. So take the parts we like and dismiss the parts we don't. To try to apply the things he said that sound good and try to dismiss the things that sound offensive. But part of what Peter is saying is it's all one person. What Jesus did, what Jesus said, his signs, his miracles, his wonders, all the way up even to his death, his resurrection, his exaltation, is God proving to you who Jesus is. Jesus did live a miraculous life, but he didn't stop there. Oftentimes, that's where we want to stop with Jesus. What a great man. What a great teacher. Peter says, look, this Jesus, the one that did all the miracles, all the signs, all the wonders, then he moves on to verse 23, and he doesn't just talk about the life of Jesus. He talks about the death of Jesus. In the life of Jesus, Jesus is attested by God, but in the death of Jesus, he's delivered up by God. He says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now, is it true that all three, we know at least 3,000 people are there because at the end of the chapter, 3,000 people get saved and come to know Christ. So thousands of people who were there, is it true that they all had a literal hand in putting Jesus to death and crucifying Jesus and hammering him and meeting out the execution and declaring Jesus guilty? Did they all have a hand in that literally? I don't, I don't think so. But what's Peter trying to say? He's trying to say, you allowed this to happen. You allowed this crucifixion to happen because you didn't understand who he was, so you thought he should have been put to death because of the claims that he made. So he puts the responsibility on the people. You're lawless. You don't understand the law. If you understood the law, you'd understand that it pointed to Jesus, but you don't have the law, and so you missed who Jesus was, so you wanted to crucify him. But Peter says something else right alongside that. You catch it? He was delivered up by God. And you crucified him. Pastor Al talked about this before Easter. He's delivered up by God and he's delivered up by men. Who, who killed Jesus? Well, it was God's perfect plan that Christ would die because there's no other way for us to be saved. But also, these people are totally responsible for killing Jesus because they completely missed who he was even though they had every evidence right in front of their face. And he looks at the death, Peter looks at the death of Jesus and he attributes it to God. So he attributes the life of Jesus to God. He's been attested by God. He attributes the death of Jesus to God. He says, hey, this was a part of God's perfect plan. And I, I thought about the, uh, the song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. We, uh, Carrie and I had this song sung at our wedding. And there's, there's a part in here that it talks about God from God's perspective. That he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss. The father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. And then, and then it goes on to say, behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice. Now wait a minute, I wasn't there 2,000 years ago, but, but the writer of this song is saying, no, no, we need to view ourselves as having been there. I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. Just like these who were held responsible for Christ's death, in some way we are because it was our sin that put him on the cross. 
And so Peter's working his way through. He's talking about the life of Jesus. He's talking about the death of Jesus. He says, you know, this was God's plan. We've talked about this before. One of the easiest places to see God's plan for the Messiah to suffer and die is Isaiah 53. He's going to carry the weight of our iniquities. He's going to be crushed. He's going to die. It was God's plan for his chosen Messiah, his Savior, his Redeemer to die. But Peter doesn't end there because the story of Jesus doesn't end there. If, if Peter says that the death of Jesus is fully responsible for God and his perfect plan and fully responsible by us because, and by the Jews because they chose to put him to death at the hands of lawless men, then when he gets to the resurrection, he leaves no doubt that it is all of God that raised Jesus. He says in verse 24, God raised him up loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So Jesus is attested by God. He's delivered up by God. And now in the resurrection, we see that Jesus is raised by God. I love this verse because it says as clear as day that Jesus could not possibly stay dead. It was impossible for death to hold him. Why? Why was that impossible? And then Peter makes a leap that maybe you and I wouldn't go to right away. He says, well, naturally, because of Psalm 16. And you say, what's Psalm 16? And then he quotes a few verses of it right here. He says, it's impossible for Jesus to be held by death because look, look what David says about Jesus. I saw the Lord always before me, for he's at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad, my tongue rejoiced, my flesh also dwelled in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You've made known to me the paths of life. You'll make me full of gladness with your presence. Here's the argument Peter's getting ready to make. David wrote Psalm 16. And up until this point in human history, when Jewish people had read Psalm 16, they looked back on David's life and said, ah, David experienced the protection of God. David understood the joy that came from God's presence and that his presence came with protection. David's life was at stake multiple times and he writes Psalm 16 as this expression of worship and joy that in God's presence, he is always safe. In God's presence, he finds joy. In God's presence, he's saved from death literally multiple times. But now that Peter looks back and understands the story of Jesus, uh, Peter reinterprets Psalm 16 with a little more depth. And now when he sees Psalm 16, he goes, wait a minute, this can't just be about David. And that's what he says in the following verse. He says, look, I, I can say with confidence, David died. He was buried. In fact, go look at his tomb. You, you know David is dead. So this psalm couldn't fully be about David because this psalm is talking about someone who didn't die and stay dead. This psalm is about someone who tasted death and then came back out the other side. So Peter's saying Psalm 16 was really about Jesus. And remember who he's talking to. He's talking to the Jews. These were their own scriptures. And Peter is showing them from their own holy book. How their own holy book was pointing ahead to someone who would taste death and then walk out the other side. So this psalm, Psalm 16, is ultimately looking forward to the Messiah who would be rescued from death and live forever. See, David knew, and it talks about the oath, the promise God gave David. David knew that God made a promise that he would one day have someone from his lineage that would be a king that was infinitely greater than David. And David knew that he would one day have someone from his line that would rule infinitely longer than him. A king infinitely greater that would rule infinitely longer. He knew that, but he didn't realize that his 
line, his son, his offspring would also experience Psalm 16 infinitely more as well. He knew somewhere down the line would come a king that would rule forever and would be perfect. But he didn't realize that the path for that king to obtain the crown went through a cross. He didn't realize that this son would experience the truth of this song infinitely more because, see, David came close to death and God rescued him, but Jesus walked into death and God rescued him. David came close to death. He had threats on his life. He had enemies. Go read the Psalms and they'll make you uncomfortable to pray because of the way David talks about his enemies. David had enemies that wanted to kill him. Everywhere he went, he was God's anointed and he was a threat to them. And David would cry out, oh God, your protection is wonderful. When I come into your presence, I mean, he says, over, go read Psalm 26 and 27 that I read yesterday. He talks about the joy and the protection of being in God. God is a refuge, the Psalms say, over and over. God's a refuge. But David only knew God as a refuge because he came close to death. And he came closer and he came closer and he came closer to death. But the minute David stepped over and experienced death, God didn't rescue him out of that death yet. But Jesus came, the greater David, the greater king, who is going to reign forever, who is going to reign infinitely better than David. And he didn't just come close to death to experience God's protection. Jesus walked all the way in to death and experienced it himself. And he also experienced God's protection. Just like Jay prayed right at the end of this worship set. And he walked into death and walked out the other side so that we can enjoy secure life in him forever. So the protection that's offered in Jesus is not just a protection of someone who kind of knows what it could be like to get sort of close to death. It's someone who says, no, I've walked all the way into it. You don't have to fear what's in there. Like I've, I've been there and I've conquered what's there. To remember what's happening in, in Acts 2. People are confused. Why are you speaking in tongues about this Jesus? He says, well, let me, let me tell you. Remember Joel? Spirit's going to come. People are going to proclaim, prophesy good news. And they're going to prophesy the good news that you have to call on the name of the Lord to be saved. Well, let me remind you who Jesus is. He's, a, he's attested by God in his life. He was delivered up by God in his death. He was raised by God in his resurrection. But we go one step further this morning and we see that Jesus was also exalted by God. Look at verse 33. He's talked about Jesus being raised up and he says, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he's poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David didn't ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, David says, and now this one's from Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. See, Jesus didn't just stop at the resurrection and stay on this earth as a, as a human being and then one day die again later. That was Lazarus. But when Jesus was resurrected, he was then exalted to the right hand of God. And we've got to ask, what, what, what in the world does that mean that Jesus ascended? The life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. The ascension of Jesus is essential for us today because it means that Jesus didn't die again. It doesn't mean that he was just a man that then happened to come back to life and he's roaming around the earth still. It means that he's in a very special place, what the scriptures say, at the right hand of God. He was exalted to God's right hand. See, I think this is important because we have two tendencies to think about Jesus. 
If you're a believer, maybe you think, um, maybe you think he was great. He, maybe he was even filled with the Spirit, but surely he wasn't God. I mean, that's a very common view today. Jesus was a great person, great teaching, great miracles even, even a great death. Maybe he was even, but there's no way he was God. This goes back thousands of years to ancient heresies where people would say, you know what, Jesus was a good man, that after God saw he was a good man, he decided to put his spirit on him and gave him a very special mission to accomplish. But Jesus is not equal with God. He's like sub-God. He's, he's more than a man, but, but he's not really equal to God. But the other tendency I think people have had throughout human history is that maybe he was God. Maybe everything that happened was true. Maybe he was even resurrected. But right now he's kicking back, taking a break. Surely he's not involved with our world today. And that's a little tempting at times, right? But functionally, we act like maybe Jesus doesn't always have the hands-on, integrated, rolling his sleeves up, active in our life. Maybe that's how it seems. Maybe that's how we choose to live. Like Jesus isn't really active anymore. He's dormant. But one day, he'll, he'll reactivate one day and make everything right. But right now, I mean, he's just kind of kicking it in heaven. But here's what Peter says about Jesus being exalted to God's right hand. And here's what it means that he's exalted to God's right hand. First of all, it means that Jesus is king. Because God's right hand was a place of authority. Check out Ephesians 1, 20 and 21, and it talks about the great might of God that raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at God's right hand, that God raised Jesus up and God seated Jesus at his right hand. Quote from Ephesians 1, 20 and 21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. To be seated at God's right hand is to be seated in a place of ultimate authority. Jesus rules and reigns over everything. He is the one universal, infinite, eternal king. There was no authority that Jesus answers to. Isn't that great news that we don't have to wonder like, Every four years, like we're voting on the ultimate authority. Praise God. We don't have to let our hopes rise and fall on that. Because there's a much more sure authority out there. The one who's in God's right hand. King Jesus. That's what it means that he's at God's right hand. But the other thing it means is not just that he is king in a place of authority, but it means Jesus is our priest because he's in a place of holiness. In the Old Testament, it was no cavalier thing to walk into the presence of God you couldn't just waltz in and decide you're gonna plop down in the holy of holies and have a conversation with God in his presence in the old testament absolutely not there was a very extensive system of sacrifices there was a very extensive system of priests who would offer those sacrifices at certain times of the year certain sacrifices had to be made and a priest a high priest even could only go into the holiest of places only once a year and he had to offer very extensive sacrifices for the nation as a whole for himself he had to be cleansed because sin is that great in separating us from the god we were designed to know and love you can't just waltz into God's presence. And so for them to say Jesus is at the right hand of God means Jesus is in the presence of God, which is therefore saying something very powerful about Jesus' lack of sin, 
about his perfection, about his purity, about his cleanliness, about his holiness. Jesus is in a, a place of holiness and intercession. See, God can't allow sin in his presence. That's why he kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden in Genesis 3. That's why Isaiah is overcome in Isaiah 6 when he sees God. Yet Jesus is at God's right hand as our advocate. He's not there boasting about his place of authority as king. He's there as king and as priest. Like we sang a minute ago, as lion conquering and as lamb sacrificed. Hebrews 9 talks about Jesus as our priest and offering the perfect sacrifice. He sits at God's right hand in the place of perfect authority, but also at God's right hand in the place of holiness and intercession, ready to dispense the salvation he accomplished. That's what he's doing at God's right hand. He is ruling, he is reigning, and he is saving and loving and welcoming you. The last thing about being seated at God's right hand is it's a place of divinity. Jesus is fully God. To be at God's right hand is not like he's God's first assistant or like chief of staff or like VP. It's a way of saying that Jesus and God are equal. Jesus is fully God. It's like we believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. One essence, three persons. Not three separate gods. Jesus is fully God, which brings us full circle from Joel. Because Peter starts by quoting Joel, and he includes the last bit that says, all who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Oh, by the way, Jesus' life was attested by God. His death was delivered up by God. He's resurrected by God. He's exalted to God's right hand, which means he is in a place of authority. He's in a place of holiness. He's in a place of divinity. He is God. So here, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain, verse 36, that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. He goes full circle to say, what you're seeing is the spirit being poured out. Remember what Joel said? You can only be saved if you call on the name of the Lord. What's the name of the Lord? It's not just the Yahweh of the Old Testament. Jesus is the Yahweh of the Old Testament. If you want to be saved in the last days, Faithful Jews, you must call on the name of Jesus. You must call on the name of Jesus if you're going to be saved. And Peter lays out what we come to see as shorthand later on in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 15, specifically the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. That is the essential gospel. And through those things, we see the work of Christ on our behalf. And so what's the response of the people? That's how this chapter ends. Peter lays out a a phenomenal sermon. It almost seems like off the cuff, and you go, he had to be filled with the Spirit to make those kind of incredible connections all throughout this short, I mean, we read it together a couple of minutes maybe. And what happened after he said this? In verse 37, it says, when they heard this, when the people gathered heard this, they were cut to the heart. The first thing that happens is conviction. There's conviction in your heart. That doesn't just come from you feeling bad or some sort of guilt or you're trying to manipulate some sort of emotional response to the message heard, but there is true conviction from the Holy Spirit. And as they're convicted, they ask the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter says to them, first, repent. Repent means to turn, like change your mind, but more than that, like turn all the way around. And here's the the 
importance of repenting. It means we turn from life without God and we turn to life with God. Eugene Peterson talked about repentance as an emptying. The first thing we got to do if you're turning to God and life with God is you got to empty yourself. You got to own the beatitude in Matthew 5. Be poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of God. It says if you really want to accept this, you've got to totally turn away from the identities you've built and the idols you worship and you've got to turn to God. You've got to turn away from the things you love as ultimate in your life and you've got to turn to God. You've got to turn away from everything and turn, you've got to empty yourself of all the worldly treasures you've built up and you've got to be poor in spirit and turn to God. But he says repent and then he says be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. See baptism was a public portrayal of their inward repentance if repentance was a matter of the heart baptism is an outward act that shows the repentance they're claiming and baptism symbolizes death and resurrection because you stand and you get put under the water i mean baptism means immersion baptizo and so you're getting immersed under the water and you're coming back out and it's symbolizing hey i identify with the death and resurrection of jesus for me that he died the death i should have died and he was resurrected to the life I could have never earned. That he died for the forgiveness of my sins and was raised so that I could have eternal life forever. So he says, repent, turn, empty yourself. Then he says, be baptized. Publicly portray your inward repentance. So maybe those first two things are kind of like our own actions of what salvation looks like, of what the Christian life looks like. Repentance and baptism. But then he talks about what God does. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. See, sins are forgiven once and for all at baptism. You never have to pay another price for your sin because Jesus has paid it perfectly and fully. He says, for the forgiveness of sins. See, we can be forgiven of all of our sin against God and we can be welcomed into his presence, which leads to the last thing. For the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit which kind of connects being emptied in repentance. Then you turn to God and he fills you with his spirit. You can't be filled unless you're empty first. We're forgiven so that we're filled. We're emptied so that we're filled up with what God wants us to be full of. The spirit brings so much into our life. The Spirit brings so much. First, it brings the presence of God. It brings the comfort of God. Jesus promised Holy Spirit. It brings the presence of God. Jesus says in Matthew 28, I will never leave you or forsake you. And the Holy Spirit is the way he fulfills that. The Spirit in your life. So in, in Acts 2, we see from start to finish a work of God. We, we see what happens with, you know, I was thinking about this, like, if you witnessed everything the disciples witnessed, if you saw Jesus' life, if you saw his death, you had a firsthand account of his crucifixion, you saw the resurrected Lord Jesus, you heard him teach you for 40 days, and then you watched him ascend into heaven, what would your sermon be? What would you say to a crowd of thousands of people? How would you sum this whole thing up? How in the world could you sum up? I mean, millions of pages have been written on the life of Christ and the work of Christ. People trying to prove it, trying to disprove it, trying to apply it to your life, trying to 
make the theology coherent to what the Old Testament says and the New Testament. People have spilled ink for thousands of years, and Peter here sums up in about a half a page what's just happened. That Jesus' life and death and resurrection and exaltation was all God's work to pay for your sin and invite you into relationship with him. And if you're going to receive that relationship, you've got to empty yourself, turn to God, and declare that publicly through baptism. God fills you with his spirit and invites you into life with him, starting now and ending never. That's what Peter declares in Acts chapter 2. And the good news this morning is that that same message is for you. That same message is for you. You are invited this morning to repent. Turn from your life without God and turn to life with God. Experience the forgiveness of sins. Experience what it means to be emptied of the things that don't really fill you up anyways. Let God fill you up and enjoy life with him forever. So Jake, come on up. We're gonna sing a song and as an opportunity to respond, I'll invite you to sing, I'll invite you to pray. I'm gonna pray for us. If you've never received Jesus, then today is your day. You're invited to come. Just the way we started the service, we'll end it. Jesus says, come. So would you please come this morning? Come to Jesus this morning. I can't save you. There's not a magical like wording that you need to say to save you, but it's about repentance, turning from life without God. And I would invite you this morning, if you've never turned to God, turn to God. And you say, what do I say? Tell him you don't know what to say. Say, God, I'm turning to you for the first time today. I've got sin that's separated me from you. And I know that Jesus pays for that. And so I want life with you forever. That's all you gotta say. I'd love to talk with you. I'd love to pray with you. If, you're, if you do know Jesus this morning, I hope you can rejoice as we talk about the life and the death and the resurrection and the exaltation of Jesus. I hope you find comfort that he's exalted at the right hand of God, that you have no higher authority than our King Jesus. But you also have no more present comforter than the Holy Spirit who's applying what Jesus accomplished. Let's pray. Father, we love you so much. Your plan is perfect. We could have never come up with something so elaborate so effective, so God-glorifying, and honestly, God, so easy for us. You require nothing of us. You just invite us to come. Is that really it? I mean, God, we're, we, we don't like that so much. We want to add something. Surely there's something we've got to do, and you tell us over and over again, stop, just come to me. So this morning, God, as we've just looked at Jesus, I pray we'd be caught up in how amazing he is. Move our hearts to worship. I pray that we would be cut to the heart like these believers were 2,000 years ago as they heard the good news. And God, this morning, I pray that you'd save people and invite them for the first time to step into a relationship with you out of darkness and into light, God. So in just a second, we're going to sing. I'll invite you to respond. You can come and pray. You can pray in your seat. You can stand and sing with Jay. I'll be down here. I would love to pray with you. So let's stand and let's sing together.